If you have a Bible, I'll ask you to open to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Last year as a church, we read through the New Testament together, and each week we've preached a passage from the five-chapter window that you had read in the previous week. This upcoming year, I hope that you have a plan to read the Bible, whether that's reading a book of the Bible in particular or reading the Bible cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, or a, a chronological plan, or whatever it may be. I hope that you have a plan to read God's Word in the new year. On Sunday mornings, we're going to do uh, things a little bit differently than we did last year. Here at the beginning of the year, we're going to spend nine weeks talking about the church. Nine weeks thinking about what is the church. This morning is week one, and we're going to just deal with the actual words, the church. What is the church? In the weeks ahead, we'll talk about the body of Christ, the family of God, a temple of the Holy Spirit, a holy nation, citizens of heaven, the flock of God, the field of God, and then the kingdom of God. So all of these sermons in this series dealing with what are we as a church? What is this thing that we're a part of and that we, we participate in on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights. At the end of these nine weeks, we're going to spend three months really continuing this study, except we're going to continue it not in a topical fashion, but we're going to continue it by studying the book of Titus. Titus is one of Paul's pastoral epistles. It was Paul writing to Titus, pastor of the church in Crete, and the book of Titus deals with right leadership, right doctrine, and right living, all under the umbrella of of the church. And so this first part of the new year, we're going to spend some time thinking about what the church actually is, how the church ought to operate and function, and what our expectations ought to be as church members. So that's going to bring us from January all the way through to the beginning of the summer. This morning, our passage is Matthew 16. It's the very first biblical reference to the church in the New Testament sense of the word church. Since we're in the Gospel of Matthew, I think it's helpful if we begin by finding our bearings in Matthew as we think about Matthew 16 and what Jesus has to say about the church. So, very big picture. Gospel of Matthew, let me just start by saying this. Matthew structures his gospel with an alternating pattern of narrative and sermon. Narrative and sermon, narrative and sermon. He tells you some stories, and then he stops, and he lets Jesus take the microphone, so to speak, and Jesus delivers a sermon. And so in your notes and on the screen, you can see the bold chapters are the chapters where Jesus is speaking, Jesus is preaching, Jesus is delivering some sort of sermon. Matthew bookends his gospel with two narratives on the front end, it's the birth narrative, the Christmas story, and on the back end, it's the resurrection narrative of Jesus coming back to life and then delivering the Great Commission before He ascends to heaven. Our passage, Matthew 16, obviously, as you look at that outline, falls in a narrative section of Matthew's gospel. As we read it in just a moment, you'll read a name place. This story takes place in an area or a city known as Caesarea Philippi. And I'll just put a few pictures up. You can visit this place today, Caesarea Philippi. And I want you to understand that it's way, way, way up north. On this map, which I know you can't read, there's three circles. The bottom circle is Jerusalem, way down south in Judah. 
the middle circle is Nazareth. And in the Jewish mindset, Nazareth was way far up north in Galilee. But our story takes place in Caesarea Philippi, which is way, way north, almost out of Jewish territory. The city was named by a man named Herod Philip, and he wanted to name it in honor of Caesar Augustus, but he also wanted to name it in honor of himself. So he named it Caesarea, Caesar, Philippi, Philip. So that's where our story takes place in the far north of Galilee. In the Gospel of Matthew, there's two introductory things that I think will help you as you think through Matthew chapter 16. The first is this. Matthew wanted his readers to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He wanted us to understand that Jesus came to fulfill all of the Old Testament scriptures. And if your Bible is open, you can look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. We read that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. David and Abraham. You could not begin a story with two more central Old Testament characters, David and Abraham. If you look at chapter 1, verse 22, Matthew says, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes the Old Testament. And Matthew is the only gospel writer to use this formulation, this phrase, and he uses it multiple times throughout the gospel. Over and over and over again, he says, this happened in Jesus' life, and it happened to fulfill something from the Old Testament. And he quotes the Old Testament scriptures. So he wants you to see Jesus as the final ultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament. He also wants you to understand that Jesus is the Christ. The Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. Again, we see that right in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. Is pulled from the Old Testament. Literally, the Greek word Christ or the Hebrew word Messiah mean anointed one. And in the Old Testament, there were three offices that were anointed for service. The prophet, anointed to serve. The priest, anointed to serve. The king, anointed to serve. So when Jesus is referred to in the Old Testament or the New as the Christ or the Messiah, you understand what the author is telling you is Jesus is the anointed king, the king of all kings. He's the anointed prophet, the one who comes to speak for God, and he is the anointed priest, the great high priest, the true high priest, not the high priest who offered an animal for the sacrifice of sins, but who offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus is Christ. Now that brings us to the big idea of our passage in Matthew chapter 16. Very simply, Jesus Christ promised to build a church. Jesus Christ promised to build a church. If your copy of Scripture is open to Matthew chapter 16, you can follow along as I read verse 13 to 20. Bible says this, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say 
that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. That's the word of God. Father, this morning we come to the scriptures. We come to the scriptures as a church family. And we pray that this morning and over the next two months that you would give us insight into what it means to be part of the church, what it means to be the church. Lord, guide our thinking, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to talk about Matthew 16 in just a minute. I want to start with a few matters of simple vocabulary. And the vocabulary word that I want to talk to you about this morning is a vocabulary word, church, the church. And I just want to start with this very, very simple, very basic idea. The Greek word, ekklesia, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, the word is kahal. These two words simply mean congregation or assembly. Congregation or assembly. Now, I want to define what the church is this morning and in the weeks ahead, but one of the ways that we often define things is by saying what a thing isn't. And so let's start right there. Let me just start with three things the church is not. Number one, the church is not a building, it's not a building. I'm not trying to trigger you. I understand that this is how we talk all the time. I tell my family over and over and over again every week, I am going to the church. And what I mean is, I am going to the building that is located at 4020 East University Boulevard, Odessa, Texas, 79762. I'm going to that place, to that building. My guess is that later today, if you bump into somebody around town or you talk with somebody on the phone and they say, what did you do today? You will say, I went to church. And the default thing that we think, the default thing that we sort of express is that we went to a building. We went to a specific place. Now, again, I'm not trying to, to dismantle or be the, the theology, the doctrine police. I understand what your grandma taught you. Are you ready for some hand signs? You know it, right? Here's the church. Here's the open the and see all the. Your grandma's a terrible theologian. Here's much, much better and much less catchy. Here is a building. You may or may not have a steeple. 
But if you open the doors, you will see the church. The church. The church is not a building. When we talk about a church, we're talking about a congregation or an assembly. We're talking about a group of people. Now, if you say to me in the next year, hey, I'm going to church. We just went to church. Hey, are you at the church? I'm not going to jump down your throat because I'm going to keep telling my family, what are you doing? Where are you going? I'm going to the church. That's how we use the phrase. But if we're going to be biblical and theologically accurate, doctrinally precise, you understand that the church is not a building. Secondly, the church is not a denomination. The church is not a denomination as one big sort of umbrella group. Let me just give you a few examples of what I mean. We might talk about the Roman Catholic Church. We might talk about the Greek Orthodox Church. We might talk about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the United Methodist Church or the Presbyterian Church in America. All of these titles are talking about denominations, a grouping of churches, buildings, peoples. It's an organizational term. You'll notice that this is a Southern Baptist church. Emmanuel is a Southern Baptist church, but we are not part of the Southern Baptist church. We are part of the Southern Baptist Convention. And the phrasing is not incidental. It's not accidental. It's not that we just wanted to use convention instead of church. It's that Baptists have understood that the church does not refer to a denomination, to a group. The church refers to a people. Now, I will grant you, in the New Testament, there is a distinction made between what theologians would call the universal church and the local church. The universal church wouldn't just be a denomination, but it would be all the redeemed people of God throughout all the ages. Maybe referred to as the invisible church. The universal church. But most of the time in the New Testament, when you read about a church or you read the word church, most of the time what is in view is an actual local church. A specific congregation, a specific assembly of believers that meet together in one particular place. This is why Baptists say you're part of a Southern Baptist church and our churches are part of a convention. It's because this is the local manifestation of the church. It's why Baptists of an earlier generation often referred to their buildings as meeting houses not churches. I'm going to the meeting house. Well, who meets there? The church meets there. It's not a building. It's not a denomination. Thirdly, it's not a program. The church is not a program, or you could say a ministry. The church is not a program or a ministry. I'd be willing to bet that if you have ever gone to a Christian concert at the Wagner or the Ector or even in a church building in a meeting house somewhere, that you have heard a Christian musician stand on a stage at some point in a concert and refer to the people in that room, regardless of who's in that room, regardless of whether or not the people in that room know each other, regardless of whether or not the people in that room are believers or not, and they've referred to everyone in the room as the church. They've said, church, we're going to worship. 
And again, I'm not trying to be the doctrine police. I'm not going to boycott a concert. I'm not going to hold up a sign in protest. But I just want you to understand that the church is not a program. And let me just give you a few examples of what I'm talking about. The church is not a concert. It's not a youth camp. It's not a Bible study. It's not, are you ready for this, post-2020? The church is not YouTube. That's not church. That's YouTube. That's watching something on a screen. It's not church. It's not a podcast. Church is not BSM, Baptist Student Ministries at the campus of UTPB. It's not First Priority. It's not Good News Club. It's not the Gideons. It's not the Permian Basin Mission Center. All those things are great. Everything up there is wonderful. Our church does all of those in some form or fashion. But none of those things are church. They're programs and they're ministries. It's not a building. It's not a denomination. It's not one particular program. So what is it? We're not going to give a comprehensive answer to that question this morning, but we're going to make a run at answering that question this morning. This is fourth on your list. We'll be positive here. The church is the redeemed people of God. When we talk about the church, universal or local, we're talking about people. Redeemed people. Christian people. Acts chapter 20, Paul is speaking to the elders of the church in Ephesus. He's saying goodbye to them, and he makes the observation, he makes the point that God has obtained the church with the blood of his son. You understand, Paul's not talking about a real estate transaction. He's talking about a people. If you look in the Bible at Hebrews chapter 12, you will read about the assembly of the firstborn. Literally, the church of the firstborn. The church of Jesus. The congregation of Jesus. The assembly of Jesus. In heaven, glorified believers. It's not a building, but it's believers. It's the people of God. The book of Revelation, which we've just come through at the end of the last year. In Revelation 5, it says, Jesus is worthy to be worshipped because He has ransomed People, not buildings, not denominations, not programs. He has ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. And again in Revelation 7, we see this people. It is a vast, massive, uncountable multitude of people standing before the throne. The church is the redeemed people of God. Fifthly, we'll say this on a positive note, the church congregates and assembles. Shocking, right? A church is a congregation or an assembly. So what does a church do? Well, most basically, it congregates and it assembles. Now you think to yourself, is that all the church does? No, it's not all the church does. Church prays together, the church preaches and proclaims the gospel, the church makes disciples, the church takes up offerings to send missionaries out, the church fellowships together, uh, the church exercises church discipline, the church exercises the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The church does all kinds of things, all sorts of activities, but most basically, the church churches. 
the assembly assembles and the congregation congregates. Which is why, and I've told you this before, I really don't like the little catchphrase, don't go to church, be the church. I'm just telling you that's impossible. If you don't go, if you don't congregate, if you don't assemble, then you're not doing church. Now, what people mean by this statement is you should be a faithful Christian. You should be a faithful Christian. You can do that all by yourself. You don't need anyone else to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. You should be Christ-like in your life, in the way you interact with people at school, at work, in your neighborhood, in our community. Be Christ-like. You can be Christ-like all by yourself. But this just sort of sounds better on a t-shirt, even though it's nonsensical when you understand what a church is. Don't go to church, be the church. But that's what the church does. The people of God go to a place to be together, to congregate together, and to assemble together. Now, let's talk about Matthew chapter 16. This is the very first time in the New Testament that Jesus referred to the church. And I just want you to see three simple truths from Matthew 16 as we begin to wrap our minds around what it means to be part of the church. The first truth is this. The church is a confessional people. We are a confessional people. If your Bible is open, look at Matthew 16, verse 13. Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? What are the answers floating around out there in the world today? The answers in their day was John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. The answers in our day might be, well, he's a good moral teacher. Well, he was a miracle worker. Well, he was some Jewish guy who thought he was God, but he was really crazy. All sorts of answers people will give to this question. Who do people say that Jesus is? But then he draws them in, and he says, okay, that's great. You understand what people are saying. What do you say? Who do you say that he is? And Peter, it's always Peter, speaks up and Peter says, You are the Christ. You understand Peter had not read the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 1, verse 1. The genealogy, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He'd not read that. But he'd read the Old Testament. And he knew what the Christ was, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the prophet, priest, and king. And he's beginning to sort of put some of these pieces together. And he says, you know what? We think you're the Christ. He adds to it and he says, you are the Son of the living God. Which in a Jewish mindset, to say that someone was the Son of God was to equate them with God. When Jesus claimed to be God's Son and He said that God was His Father, the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem tried to stone Jesus for blasphemy because He was making Himself equal to God. Dogs beget dogs. People beget people. In the Jewish mind, God begets God. So if you are God's Son, you are equal to God. Peter confesses that. Who do we think that you are? We think that you're the Christ. 
We think that you're the son of the living God. Now, let's be honest. If you keep reading down into verse 21 and following, you understand that Peter and his friends do not have all the pieces put together yet. Peter immediately begins to rebuke Jesus and to say, no, this isn't going to happen. Jesus, you're confused. Jesus, you're wrong. Jesus calls Peter Satan. It's a very dramatic moment. But this is the point. Jesus is drawing his followers to the truth about who he is. And this is a really important point. Salvation is more than just a decision. Salvation is a miracle. The salvation of any person, any man, woman, boy, girl, any sinner, is a miracle that only God can execute. Your salvation is not just a matter of sitting in this room and listening to someone like me present you with facts and then you make a decision about it. There's more to it than that. There's way more to it than that. Now, at some point in your life, you need to sit in a room like this or you need to have a conversation with somebody who will tell you some things, some truths about Jesus, some truths about who God is, some truths about who you are. You need to have somebody say to you, the one true creator God is holy, holy, holy. And you are not. You're a sinner. You have fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news of the Bible is that God sent His Son, Jesus, to live a life of perfect obedience that you have not lived and to die on a cross for your sins. You need to hear somebody communicate those truths to you at some point. And guess what? You do need to make a decision about those truths. You've got to respond to those truths. And the response that Jesus calls you to make is repentance and faith. Repentance, agreeing with God about your sin, confessing your sin to God and turning from it. Faith, believing that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. You need to hear some truths. You need to make a response and a decision. But here's the kicker. Are you ready for this? You can't do it on your own. And I can't do it for you. Only God can save a sinner. Jonah, the Old Testament prophet, reluctantly admitted this in Jonah 2 verse 9 when he said, salvation is from the Lord. It's his to give. Jesus says the same thing to Simon Peter. Peter gives the best answer he's ever given in his life to date. And Jesus says, Simon, that's wonderful. You didn't come up with that on your own. This was revealed to you. God had been at work in Peter's life. Did he have all the pieces put together yet? No, he did not. That's clear from verse 21 and following. But it, by God's grace... By the work of the Holy Spirit, Peter's eyes are beginning to open to the truth about who Jesus is, and he confesses what is true about Jesus. Was it just that Peter, James, John had convinced each other? No, it's that it had been revealed to them. A miracle had taken place. The same miracle that took place in the life of Lydia when Paul went to Philippi, and he preached the gospel. Lydia heard it. But the Lord opened her heart to believe what Paul had said. The Lord opened her ears to hear what Paul was saying. Salvation is always a miracle. It always requires a miracle. 
Yes, truths need to be communicated. Yes, you need to make a response. But unless God gives the growth, nothing happens. I pray that that's happened in your life. You know how you know if God has done that in your life? It's if you confess the truth about Jesus. If in your heart and in your mind you say, I believe that he's the Christ and I believe that he's the son of the living God. No person can genuinely say those things with their mouth, with their heart, with their mind unless a miracle has taken place in their life. You can parrot the words, you understand. You can say the words. You can repeat after me all day long. But if you say those words from your heart, it's only because someone has shared the gospel with you and God has opened your heart to the truth of the gospel. As Christians, we're gathered into a church and the church is a confessional people. This does not fly well or go over well in the 21st century, but in the church, it is not up for you to decide who Jesus is to you. There are churches aplenty in the world, at least churches that have the sign out front that says they're a church, who are trying to tickle ears and cater to a new generation and saying, Jesus can be whoever you want him to be. It's nonsense. The question is not, who is he to you? The question is, who is he and who do you say that he is? He's the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. The church is a confessional people. Secondly, the church is built by Jesus. Built by Jesus. We'll talk about something here that's clear and something that's a little bit less clear. If you look at verse 18, there's something clear. Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. That's the clear part. Jesus said he would build his church. He would do the building, and the church would belong to him. And again, you understand he's not talking about buildings, but he's talking about people. I will build a congregation, I will build an assembly, and they will belong to me. That's what Jesus said to Peter. Humans can use marketing and entertainment and ear-tickling to draw a crowd. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to draw a crowd. A little bit of marketing, a little bit of entertainment, tickle a few ears, you can build a crowd. Only Jesus can build a church. Only Jesus. The truth about Jesus has to be revealed to you. I can't convince you of it. You can't convince yourself of it. Only God can reveal this to you. Salvation is from the Lord. Only Jesus. Only God the Father, only God the Son, only God the Spirit working together in the plan of redemption can build a church. He builds it. It belongs to Him. This last summer, my family went on vacation. We went to Florida. We had a sandcastle contest. I am happy to say, although there was no judging, my team won. Me and my brother-in-law and Clayton, we had this sandcastle. It was more of like a a sand estate that really wasn't built up very high, but we had all sorts of little towers here and there, and we had a football field and a river and all of these things. You can sort of see the idea there, and you can see we're very confidently holding up number one. 
About the time we got done, we looked about 20 yards down the beach. This isn't what we saw, but this is about what we saw about 20 yards down from us. Again, it wasn't that one, but I looked online. It was about that good. And we went back in the evening to the beach, and we saw our little pitiful sand estate there, and we looked down at this really amazing sandcastle. We were admiring it. And while we were admiring it, a family came down, mom and a dad, and about three, four teenage boys. And we were admiring this sandcastle. And we kind of walk away, and I turn around, and the teenage boys run, not to our castle, but to this other sandcastle, they run to it, and they just destroyed it. And you're a lot nicer than me. You went, oh. I went, hey. And you know what they said? We built it. It's ours. We can do with it what we please. They're right, aren't they? They built it. If you build something, it's yours. No one could touch our sand estate. We built it. Leave it alone. It's first place. They had the right to tear that sandcastle down. They built it. It was theirs. Jesus says in Matthew 16, I will build my church. This is not my church. Emmanuel is not my church in the truest sense. And it's not your church. I mean, it's okay, again, if you just in common conversation say, what, what church you go to? Oh, my home church is Emmanuel. That's okay. That's okay. We understand what you mean. But it's really not yours. And it's really not mine. God obtained the church with the blood of its son. It belongs to the triune God. Jesus promises to build the church. Now, let's talk about something less clear. We just skipped over it. Verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Can I just tell you something funny about Baptists? And I'm a proud Baptist. You cut me, I bleed Lottie Moon. Baptists are terrified to be Catholics. Baptists are absolutely horrified that they might do something that makes them a little bit too Catholic. And the traditional Catholic answer to this verse is that Peter is the rock. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the Catholic church says, well, look, the rock is Peter, and Peter was the first pope, and the church was built on him, all this stuff. Baptists are terrified to be associated with anything Catholic. It's a phobia we have. And so you read Baptist commentaries, and they say things like, well, the rock really isn't Peter, the rock is Peter's faith. Well, the rock really isn't Peter. The rock is the gospel that Peter believes. Well, the rock really isn't Peter. The rock is all the apostles. Jesus is going to use these guys in a special way. I'm just telling you, if you read this in the original language, the pun, the dad joke, only makes sense if Peter is the rock. Because what Jesus actually said is, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. It's a pun. You're Peter, and on you, I'm going to build my church. Does that mean Peter was the first pope? Absolutely not. What it does mean is that Jesus, in building his church, uses human leaders. 
And you see that in the book of Acts. God used Peter in a unique way in the book of Acts. Who preached the very first sermon in the book of Acts? It was Peter. Who was one of only a few guys to be recognized as a pillar in the early church? It was Peter. Who was the first man that took the gospel to Gentiles? It wasn't Paul, it was Peter. God used him in a unique, special way. I think you see this reflected in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4. Ephesians 2, which we sort of referenced in a song earlier, says that Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone. And the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. Jesus is the cornerstone. The apostles and prophets are the foundation. You only need one foundation in a building. You only need one cornerstone. So there's only one Jesus, and there's only one foundation, only one group of apostles and prophets in the early days of the church. Peter was used in a special way by God to lay this foundation for the church. But if you keep reading in Ephesians 4, you also find out that God has given the church evangelists and pastors and teachers. Why? That the church would be built up, strong and secure, not tossed about by every wind and wave of doctrine, and that the people of God, the church, would be equipped for the work of the ministry. Jesus builds the church. How does He do it? He uses human leaders with all their flaws. Church leaders are no different than Peter. One minute we say something brilliant, the next minute Jesus calls us the devil. Uses pastors, uses Sunday school teachers, uses elders, uses deacons, uses people who go out on mission trips across Texas, across North America, all the way to Kenya. He uses human leaders to build the church. And unlike our sandcastles, which whether or not the teenage boys knock it down tonight will be gone tomorrow, Jesus builds the church to last. And he says the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against the church that he promises to build. Number three, the church has gospel authority. Gospel authority. The last two verses of this passage are the oddest, admittedly. Verse 19, Jesus says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then verse 20 is even odder. It's even stranger. He says, strictly, do not tell anyone that he's the Christ. Those are two odd verses, aren't they? The stuff about keys and binding and loosing has Old Testament precedents, and essentially what Jesus is saying is, I am giving you gospel authority to proclaim good news to people. Are you able to forgive their sins? No, but you will carry a message that offers the forgiveness of sins. You have authority to proclaim a message And what you proclaim or what you do not proclaim will resound throughout eternity in heaven. It's the binding and the loosing. If you take every opportunity, you share the gospel, God changes hearts, 
People will have a a secure place in eternity. If you sit on the gospel and enjoy your little entertainment program in a building, people will be lost for all eternity. It gives us a sense of urgency, does it? And then Jesus squashes it in verse 20, and he strictly tells the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Why did he say that? You understand that our story is one small story in a bigger story. And there's actually something bigger going on in the gospel of Matthew than Jesus simply coming to convince people that he's the Christ. Jesus, Matthew chapter 1, was given the name Jesus because he was born to save his people from their sins. That was mission number one. Live a life of perfect obedience and die a substitutionary death on the cross that sinners might be forgiven. So that when the gospel message is proclaimed to them and the Holy Spirit of God draws them to salvation and opens their hearts to the truth of the gospel, they will confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that by confessing the truth about Jesus, they will be saved. So we live not on that side of the cross, but on this side of the cross. You understand now, the mission of salvation has been accomplished. Jesus died, and when he died, he said, it's finished. It's paid. I've done the Father's work. But then he gave a commission to his disciples, and you can find it at the end of Matthew chapter 28. The call, the command that Jesus gave to his followers was, go everywhere and tell everyone the good news about me. Make disciples of all the nations. On this side of the cross, we have been sent to tell everyone about Jesus. Who are we as a church? We're not a building. We're not a denomination. We're not a program. We're the redeemed people of God who meet together in this church family, in this particular meeting house on a particular schedule, we gather together to worship. And we gather together around the truth about Jesus, confessing that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then, as the church, we scatter, and we scatter for mission to tell everyone everywhere, the good news about Jesus. Let's pray this morning.